Well, it's 1938, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt is president, and the cost of a gallon of gas is 10 cents. Can you imagine that? I mean, can you imagine taking your big SUV up there and filling it all the way full for like three bucks or less? 10 cents a gallon. That's 1938, FDR is president. In October of 1938, the country is nervous. The country's on edge. The country's a bit jittery. The country is fearful. They're nervous about the war. They're fearful about the economy. They're nervous about the future of the nation and really the future of the world. But on Halloween Eve, 1938, on Halloween Eve, 1938, Orson Welles is getting ready to go on the air with his radio show that was recorded and broadcast live from the Meridian Room from the Park Plaza Hotel in New York City. And that night when he went on on Halloween Eve at the very top of the program, he let everybody know that Tonight's broadcast is going to be a bit different. Tonight's broadcast is going to be a dramatization of H.G. Wells' famous book, The War of the Worlds. Now, apparently what happened next leads us to believe that nobody was paying attention to the introduction of the program. Nobody was listening. So he turns it over to Raman Raquello's symphony orchestra, and they're commencing with dance music. And so it seems like a normal show. And a few minutes into the dance music, there's that unmistakable sound, you know, of a special news bulletin, kind of like a teletype, you know, you know, we interrupt this regularly scheduled program to bring you a special news bulletin. And then the announcer came on and said, there's reports that a meteor has been seen flashing through the sky and landing in the facility of Grover's Mill, New Jersey. We don't have all the details right now, but as soon as we get more details, we will keep you informed. Now back to the dance music. And the music continued for another few moments, and all of a sudden it was another special bulletin. And that sounds just like it, right? And, and so, you know, as a spe he says, ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt this with grave news. The initial reports of a meteorite, meteorite crashing into Grover's Mill, New Jersey, that particular area. That was a wrong report. Ladies and gentlemen, what we have happening is a vanguard of an alien army that is attacking our planet. And right now that city is under attack by a heat ray. Well, people, there was reports of stampedes. There were reports of suicide. There were reports of some grabbing their shotgun, running outside to defend the planet. I mean, I don't know how they thought they were gonna stack up against the little aliens and their heat ray, but honey, give me the shotgun. What's going on? We're invaded. And some people got in their car and drove off and, and it was kind of crazy. And years later, you know, the, the, the reports vary about just what all happened and how far the extent of it was. But, but we hear a, a, a thing like that and we're like, is that even real? It's real. It, it became known as one of the top 10 fake news events in all of history because people thought it was true, but it wasn't true. And, and we hear that today in our 2021 sensibilities. And we ask the question, who could believe such a thing? What reasonable person would believe such an unbelievable thing? What kind of unreasonable person would believe something so unbelievably unreasonable? And we're kind of snooty about it. Like, I wouldn't have believed it if I were there. But a lot of us who are Christians who are Jesus followers, we kind of have lost sight that in 2021 America and Western culture, that's how a lot of people are feeling about Christianity. Who could believe such a thing? 
Who can believe such a thing like those Christians believe? All the things that those Christians believe, who could believe such a thing? What kind of unreasonable person would you have to believe to believe all of that Christian stuff? And a growing number of people believe that you actually have to lose your mind in order to find faith. Uh, matter of fact, uh, the latest numbers, and, and it continues to evolve year after year, but less than one in four Americans, less than one in four Americans believe that the Bible should be taken seriously. Less than one in four believe that the Bible should be taken seriously as some type of divine book or divine revelation. An increasing number of people see this as a book of fables or a book of legends, just made up stories that people have made and they've gotten bigger over the years. That somewhere once upon a time, a group of men got together and decided what to put in it and what to keep out of it because they had a very particular story that they wanted to tell and they were after power and wealth and control. Data also shows that even within the walls of the church, could be your children, could be your grandchildren, might be you, that there's a growing uncertainty and skepticism about what all is in this book. And that's why we're doing this series. That's why we spent a few weeks talking about how to have a reasonable faith in the face of doubt, whether it's your doubt or whether it's somebody else's doubt. Because this is what the apostle Peter said to Christians in the first century and to Christians in every century. He said, always be prepared. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Be prepared. Take some time. Think about it. Think about your faith. If you're a Jesus follower, you should spend some time thinking about your faith, what you believe and why you believe it. None of us should be content with borrowed beliefs. I just believe what granny said. Granny was great. She made good gravy and I just trust her on all things. The preacher man said it and he was a nice guy and I just kind of go with him. You shouldn't be content with borrowed belief. And if you're a mom or a dad or a grandparent, you shouldn't be content that your children's belief is just a borrowed belief. That it's just because they were born in your family and they went to church and, and they never spent any time thinking about it. All of us should follow the facts. All of us should evaluate the evidence and we should study. We should think about these things so that we can own our faith. And if we own our faith, we'll not be so easily to give it, you know, so easy to give it away. When life is tough or when we get a better opportunity or when it's not convenient that we're so willing to part with our faith, if we own it, it's difficult to sell it out. And so he says, be ready for everyone who asks an answer from you about the reason. He says, eventually people will be curious about your faith. If they know you, they watch you, they encounter you, they do life with you, you know, they travel with you, they work for you, they work with you, that they look at you and they figure out that you're a Christian and they have some idea of what you believe, but sooner or later they'll become curious about why you believe what you believe. And Peter says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. Not an answer for everything. You don't have to be able to give an answer about dinosaurs or millions of years or billions of years or about all the theories of creation or Noah's Ark, was it a global flood? Was it a local flood? Did the levee system around the Black Sea collapse? And, and you know, what about all that other wacky stuff in the Old Testament? You don't have to have an answer ready to go for all of that. But he says, have an answer ready for the hope that you have. In other words, be ready to answer this question. Why Jesus? Why Jesus? Why do you follow Jesus? Why have you in some way placed your trust in Jesus? Why not another religious system? Why not Buddha? Why not Confucius? Why not Muhammad? Why anything at all? 
Why even have some type of faith? Why even embrace some type of religious teaching or system? Why Jesus? Why Carpenter from Nazareth? Why a man who was born in poverty, who lived in obscurity, a man who, he never wrote a book. He never had formal education. He never held a political office. He never led an army. So why him? Why Jesus? And it's not because of his birth. We're going to celebrate that, you know, in a few weeks at Christmas. It's a great story. Wise men following a star, shepherds, Virgin Mary, Joseph. It's a great story, but we don't follow Jesus because of his birth. And we don't even follow Jesus because of his teachings. As much as we love, love, you know, your neighbor as yourself. And as much as we love, do for others as you would have them do unto you. And as much as we love, bless your enemy, forgive your enemy. As much as we love with God, all things are possible. And all the things that Jesus said. It's not because of his teachings that we follow Jesus. It's not even his death. As horrible as it is, as unjust as it was, as grotesque as it will always be, the death of Jesus is not the reason we have hitched our wagons to Jesus. It's not the reason we follow Jesus. So why Jesus? And the answer, it's one thing and one thing only. It's the resurrection. That's why Jesus, we have decided to commit our life to him our devotion, place our faith and trust in who he is and what he said. Without the resurrection, we don't care about the birth of Jesus. Without the resurrection, we wouldn't be talking about the teachings of Jesus. We wouldn't care about the Old Testament scriptures if it weren't for Jesus. We wouldn't pay attention to his miracles. We wouldn't care about his death because he died a criminal's death, just like millions of others at the hands of the Roman Empire. But it's the resurrection that makes Jesus's birth significant. It's his resurrection that makes his teachings authoritative. It's his resurrection that makes us believe that his death had some type of cosmic, eternal consequence. And the resurrection for Jesus followers, it is the foundation of our faith. And on the resurrection, we hang our hope, our hope in this life and our hope in the life to come. Without the resurrection, you wouldn't care a flying rip about Jesus of Nazareth. Without the resurrection, you wouldn't know perhaps anything about Jesus of Nazareth. Without the resurrection, there's no such thing as church. There's no such thing as Christianity. There's no such thing as faith. There's no such thing as hope. Paul said it right. And this is what the apostle Paul said. He, he hung it all on the resurrection. He put it out there so much. He threw the gauntlet. He said, okay, if you can disprove the resurrection, if you can poke a hole in the resurrection to his first century audience, he said, you can dismantle this whole thing called Christianity. He said, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless in vain, worthless without consequence. It is useless and so is your faith. That without the resurrection, none of it matters. So why Jesus? The resurrection. And so the question becomes, is the resurrection something that reasonable people can believe? And this is where we're going to spend our time this week, and this is where we're going to spend our time next week. And we've been building to this over the last few weeks because if someone asks you the reason for your hope, I said that we can say, well, we believe that God exists. And they said, well, why do you believe that God exists? Well, because the universe had a beginning and everything that has a beginning has a cause. And if the universe had a beginning, then the universe must have a cause. And if time, space, and matter, if it has a beginning, then the cause must be an uncaused first cause that in some way exists outside of time, space, and matter. And that sounds a lot like 
God. So why do you believe that God exists? Well, because the universe has a beginning. Why else do you believe that God exists? Well, I believe that everything seems finely tuned. It seems like we're here on purpose. We're not too close to the sun. We're not too far away. It's baby bear, you know, baby bears, baby bears porridge. It's, it's just right. It's just the way it's supposed to be. All the constants around us that never change, that if they fluctuated just ever so slightly, life wouldn't be possible. It seems finely tuned. Seems too much for coincidence or accident. And then the complexity of human life in your DNA and the people that we look into the eyes of all the time. Well, I believe God exists. And if God exists, then miracles are possible. I know it's hard to believe, but miracles are possible if God exists. It's like C.S. Lewis said, if you believe that God exists, then miracles are just part of the bargain. You can't say, I believe that God exists, but discount miracles. If God exists, then God can do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. He doesn't have to explain it, but I can believe that miracles are possible. It's reasonable. It's reasonable to believe that God exists, and I believe it's reasonable to believe that miracles are possible. So yeah, I believe in the resurrection because God exists and miracles are possible. I believe that. And if God exists, it kind of makes everything on the table. And so then the question becomes, has the God of the universe, the God of creation, has he revealed himself to us? That becomes the question. Has God confirmed himself to us in some miraculous way in history? Has he distinguished himself for who he is and who he is not in some special way in history? Now, Christians, let me tell you, tell you what us Christians believe. We believe that the supreme, sovereign, eternal creator God has made himself known through Jesus Christ of Nazareth. That's what we believe as Christians. You say, why do you believe that? Because, well, Jesus claimed this. Jesus said this. Jesus said this. You may not know this, but Jesus said, I and the Father are one. You get one, you get the other. You believe in one, you have to believe in the other. You can't separate us. We're like a, we're like a package deal. We're together in on this. Me and the Father are one. We're the same. One day Jesus was talking to a group of religious leaders, and he says, you know what, guys? Abraham looked forward to seeing my day. And they're like, Abraham, Abraham... He was centuries ago, and they looked at Jesus and said, you're not yet 50 years old, and you, you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. In other words, guys, I was here a long time before Abraham was, and I'm gonna be here a long time after Abraham's not. I am God, and if, and if he left anything up, you know, that's not clear, he said in John 14, anyone who's seen me, they've seen the Father. So if you wanna know what God's like, look at me. If you wanna know what God sounds like, listen to me. And everybody understood it. So don't let people tell you that Jesus never claimed to be God. They've never read the New Testament apparently. John said it this way, people knew exactly what he was saying. For this reason, they tried the more to kill him, why? Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So over and over again, Jesus claimed to be God and his miracles were in some way signs that God had sent him, that God was with him and perhaps as he claimed that he was God and that these signs, these miracles were evidence that should give us pause to consider who is this man? Who is this Galilean? So Jesus claimed to be God and then his first followers came to believe that he was God. Listen to what Matthew said. Matthew said about the birth of Jesus, he was quoting an Old Testament prophet by the name of Isaiah, that the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. This is him describing the birth of Jesus. And they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew said in some way when Jesus was born, God came to us. 
that the eternal creator, supreme, all-powerful God was born. John said it this way. You've heard this maybe. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him all things were made. That's Genesis. And without him, nothing was made that has been made. And then he jumps down a little bit further, and he says, and this word that was with God, that has been with God since the beginning, that is God, he became flesh, and he dwelt among us. And then he goes down a little bit further in the same breath. He says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only son, talking of Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father. He has made him known that Jesus, he brought God close because he is God. He has taught us, revealed to us this God who exists outside of time, space, and matter. He entered into time, space, and matter, became one of us to reveal himself to us. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute because this is phenomenal. What would it take for you to hang out? What kind of person would it take for you to hang out with night and day for three and a half years for you to come to the belief that they were God? Think about it for a moment. Now, I go skiing every year with a group of guys. Some of them are here right now. I love them and they're great friends of mine, but I'm telling you, I've never in all of our travels, in all of our dinners, in all of our time together, no, not once have I once even suspected that any of them are God. I know them. And you know what? Better yet, they know me. And I can imagine going skiing this year and walking down into the living room of the cabin and standing there on the platform of the stairs and saying, gentlemen, listeneth. Because I just feel like you need to throw a TH on there if you're about to say something really important. Listeneth to me. Me and God are one. And guys, friends of mine, when you've seen me, you've seen God. And when you've heard me, you've heard God. Now I'm telling you, I can't speak 100% to this, but I'm pretty sure they're not gonna fall to their knees and think, that's what we thought. <laughs> no. They're gonna pick up a phone and call a doctor and think, oh my God, he's crazy. The church has finally drove him crazy. So these guys were with Jesus night and day for three years. They saw it all, the good, the bad, the ugly, behind the scenes, the private conversations. And they believed that he was God. Which begs the question, why would they believe this guy they hung out with for three and a half years? Why would they believe something about him that was so seemingly unbelievable? Are they like the people listening to Orson Welles on Halloween Eve in 1938? Are they just crazy? Are they just simpletons? Are why? Why did they believe that Jesus was who he claimed to be? The resurrection. It wasn't his birth that convinced them. It wasn't his teachings. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't his death. Because when he died at three o'clock on Friday, they all walked away thinking it was over. But then the resurrection happens on the first day of the week on Sunday. And you know what? They claimed they were witnesses of it. They told others about it. Then they wrote it down for the sake of others. And what they wrote down, we have in what we call the New Testament. It's just not one book, but it's a collection of 27 different documents that we got put together for us. And the question is, can we trust the testimony of the people who were there and said, we saw it, we heard it, we're going to document it. The question really is for all of us, 
Can we trust, not the Old Testament, but can we trust the New Testament? Because if we can't trust the New Testament, we can't trust anything that we think we know about Jesus. And you need to understand that. If we can't trust the New Testament, we can't trust anything that we think that we know about Jesus. So why do we Christians believe that the New Testament records, the New Testament historical document, why do we believe that they are reliable? Because that's really the ball game. Let me give you a couple things to think about. Why we believe. Hey, you Christian, tell me why you believe that Jesus was resurrected. Well, I believe God exists and I believe miracles are possible. And I believe that the New Testament is a reliable source of history. Can you tell me why? Okay, I'll tell you why. Because of all the extra biblical testimony, that is literature outside of the Bible, other people wrote about Jesus other than the people who we find writing in the New Testament. There are 10, everybody say 10. There's 10 non-Christian sources. So these are not from Christians. These are not from people within the camp. 10 non-Christian sources that corroborate the life of Jesus and what the New Testament presents to us about the life of Jesus. People like Josephus, people like Tacitus, people like Phallus and Suetonius and Emperor Trajan and Pliny the Younger. People who were in politics, people who were historians, people who were soldiers. They were recording history in real time during this period. And what they wrote about Jesus corresponds with what we read about Jesus in the New Testament. Now, if you're gonna say that the New Testament authors had an angle or had a reason to lie, then you certainly can't say that about the non-Christians because they're just recording what's happening. Now, here's what non-Christian sources tell us about Jesus. One, that Jesus lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. We find that out in the Gospel of Luke and also in the book of Acts. We also are told by non-Christian writers that he lived a virtuous life, that in some way his life was different. It, it, was, it was holy, it was, it was righteous in a way that you know, we, we really don't understand. Three, we're told by non-Christian writers that he was a wonder worker, that, that he, was a, he was a miracle worker of some kind. Non-Christian writers tell us that he had a brother named James and coincidentally, so does the New Testament tell us that. Non-Christian writers tell us that he was thought to be the Messiah, which is, again, in line with the New Testament. Non-Christian writers says that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, just as the Gospel of John tells us about in great detail. Non-Christian writers also tell us that there was an eclipse and an earthquake the day that Jesus died, just as the Gospel writers record. Non-Christian writers tell us that Jesus was crucified during Passover. And that a few days later, his disciples believed that he had been raised from the dead. This is non-Christian writers. They say that his disciples were even willing to die for what they said they believed about his resurrection. Non-Christian writers tell us that Christianity spread fast and wide, even as far as Rome, which we read about in the book of Acts. And that his disciples refused to worship Roman gods and they worshiped Jesus as God. That's what non-Christian writers outside of the Bible tell us about Jesus. And you know what? It lines up with what the New Testament tells us concerning a historical record of Jesus from Nazareth. Now to take it a little bit further, overall there's 42 different sources that write about the life of Jesus within the first 150 years of his life. 42 sources. Now I know that doesn't mean anything to us, but let me give you a little bit of a contrast. Tiberius Caesar, the most important man in all the world in the first century, the most powerful man in all the world, there's only 10 people who write about him. 42 
who write about Jesus. Nobody questions whether or not Tiberius Caesar really lived. Nobody questions the events that we know about Tiberius Caesar. So it's quite the double standard to say, okay, I'm just gonna dismiss outright everything that the New Testament and non-Christian writers tell us about Jesus because it's just an unfair assessment of history and it's an unfair application of what we know, how what we know about history itself. Now, this is a big deal because these are non-Christians outside the Bible telling us what the New Testament tells us. The second thing is this, the early testimony. The first disciples wrote it down early. When historians determine the accuracy or the reliability of a, a, a work of antiquity, the earlier the document can be to the actual event that it's talking about, the more reliable it is considered. So the closer that a writing gets to the actual event that it writes about, the more reliable it is considered. Now, most of the, and I, listen, I know, I know, I know. Some of you are looking at me like, what in the world? I promise you, I, I'm telling you something that it's gonna help you and it's gonna help your faith get bigger. Most of the New Testament, if not all of the New Testament was written prior to AD 70, but we specifically believe that the gospels were written prior to 70 especially confident of Matthew, Mark, and Luke being written prior to AD 70. You say, how do we know that? Because of what's not written in the New Testament. Now, a lot of us don't think of Jesus as being a, a, a prophet or, or giving prophecies or making predictions, but Jesus made one of the most profound predictions in all of the New Testament. Mark records it, Matthew records it, Luke records it. And this is what, Math, this is what Mark records about it. He says, as Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what ma massive buildings. And they were standing on the Mount of Olives and they were looking over at the Temple Mount to the Temple of Herod. This incredible, you know, facade, this incredible edifice, the, the Temple of Herod. And look at those magnificent buildings. And Jesus says, do you see all of these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left upon another. Everyone will be thrown down. And I'm telling you, I've been there. We're going back this summer, but I was there. And those stones that Jesus talks about being thrown down, they're still laying there. Many of them are still laying there. And in that moment, Jesus, somewhere around maybe 28, 29, 30 AD, Jesus predicts the destruction of the Jewish temple. That was a big deal. Now, let me tell you, fast forward, August 7th, 70 AD. This very thing happened. Four years into the first Jewish war, this is all history. You can go Google it, read it, it's fascinating. There was a major rebellion in, in Israel, in first century Palestine. There was a major rebellion of Jewish. There were some Jewish gangs, they were hyper-political. And so they started attacking all these different groups of Roman soldiers and rebelling against Roman authority. And they would attack them and they were so nimble and so quick and so stealth, they would attack and then they would withdraw. They would attack and then they would withdraw. And so this was going on in Rome. Rome doesn't put up with such stuff. So Rome decided to send General Vespasian who had a reputation of being able to quell rebels. So General Vespasian shows up with his Roman legions up in Galilee and he begins to systematically disarm this rebellion. So much so that he chases the rebels from up in Galilee and Northern Israel down into Jerusalem. And when the rebels get to Jerusalem, they storm the Roman garrisons and they steal all the weapons from the soldiers. They kill many of the soldiers. And then some of them went to Masad where Herod had built a fort and stored you know, weapons for years and years. And they went back and from Masada, they brought back the weapons that Herod had been storing there for decades. 
And then they locked themselves up inside the, the city walls. And for the next four years, inside the city walls, it was chaos. Inside, all of these gangs are trying to vie for influence and power. But on occasion, they would join hands together and they would slip outside the city gates. They would attack the Romans and they would run back inside. Well, Vespasian and his Roman legions, they surround Jerusalem. But then he gets word to come back to Rome and Vespasian becomes emperor. He leaves his son Titus with strict orders. Take the city, son. Take the city. And so for the next two years or so, he builds ditches and trenches all around the city walls, about 40 some miles worth of trenches. He builds about 35, 38, maybe 40 uh, forts or different things around the city walls and then scaffolding so that they could look over. And so for the next couple of years, they tried to scale over the wall. They tried to break down the wall. They tried to dig under the wall. And then they try a campaign of intimidation and they start crucifying any Jew that they can find on that scaffolding so that people inside the city can see it. Josephus, a historian from that time period says that on one day, Titus had 500 Jewish people crucified on the scaffolding. I mean, it was a big deal. And then in August of 8070, they finally breached the wall. And when they went inside, Titus listened to daddy. He took no prisoners. He pillaged and he destroyed and he killed everything that he could touch, including walking up to the Temple Mount, setting it on fire and commanding them to tear it to the ground. Josephus wrote about it and he said, the slaughter within was even more dreadful than the spectacle from without. Men and women, old and young, insurgents and priests, those who fought and those who entreated mercy were hewn down in indiscriminate carnage. The number of the slain exceeded that of the slayers. The legionnaires had to clamber over heaps of dead to carry on the work of extermination. Scholars believe that somewhere between 300,000 and a million Jews were killed that day. The city was destroyed and the temple was destroyed. Judaism that day ended. There has not been another sacrifice offered in Judaism since that day. And you know where you read about it in the gospels? You don't. Why? Because it hadn't happened yet. When the gospel writers wrote their accounts, they wrote it before all of this happened. It is reasonable to think that if they'd lost their country, they'd lost their capital, they'd lost their city, they'd lost their temple, which was the center of religion, society, politics, and econo the economy for a thousand years. And if hundreds of thousands of their people were killed and slaughtered and left for dead in the streets and hundreds of their villages were burnt to the ground in what Josephus called the greatest war of all time up to that moment, don't you think that it would have been a grand opportunity to say just as Jesus predicted, it happened because they did this with Old Testament prophets all the time. But this would have been a great, if you're trying to make a story greater, this would have been a great opportunity to say, we remember when Jesus said that the temple would be torn down and it happened just as he said, but you don't find it in there because the documents were written earlier than 8070. So it's the early testimony. They wrote it down early. Now, again, let me take you a little bit further. If the gospels were written prior to 8070, there's other books that were written even before that. Acts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, which records the beginning of the church. Acts was written no later than 62 AD, about 20, 22 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. In that book, Luke traces the ministry of Peter in the first half and Paul in the second half. He mentions martyrs like Stephen and James, the brother uh, of John. 
But yet, he doesn't mention James, the, brother, the half-brother of Jesus, getting killed. And James, the half-brother of Jesus, was killed according to outside history in 62. He was killed by the Sanhedrin. So Luke must have written the book of Acts no later than 62, because th- this, this is even better. That means that Luke, the prequel to Acts, happened even earlier. And Paul, when he wrote 1 Timothy, he wrote it somewhere around 62 or 65. And in 1 Timothy, Paul quotes the gospel of Luke in that letter. And he refers to it as scripture. So that means that there must have been a copy of the gospel of Luke already circulating for many years, so much so that Paul was already familiar with it and Timothy was already familiar with it. Peter and Paul got killed in the 60s. And I know this is a deep thought, but I think most of their books must have been finished before that. All right? So their writings happened prior to the time that they were killed in the 60s in Rome. There was an archaeological find in a place called Delphi that helps us pinpoint the travels and the writings of Paul. We know that he wrote Galatians somewhere around 48 AD. Amazing, less than 20 years after the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, or 1 Corinthians, he wrote it in 55 AD. And in 1 Corinthians, just like 1 Timothy, in that letter, Paul again quotes Luke. He quotes him. So that means that the gospel of Luke must have been written prior to 55. So we're getting even closer to the resurrection because early testimony matters. And if Luke was written before 55, this is when it gets even better. Luke says in the first three verses of his gospel that he used other eyewitness accounts, which most scholars believe that's Matthew and Mark. So Matthew and Mark must have been written before the gospel of Luke. It gets us even closer to the resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes a creed. He he references a creed, which is the earliest Christian literature that we have in the New Testament. And this is what he says. He says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you in 51 AD, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, when? 51 AD. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I first received way back in 35 AD. Paul was converted somewhere around 32 AD. But something happened in 35, and I'll get to that in just a moment. He says, I have passed on to you what I discovered, what I have experienced, what I know for sure, dating all the way back to AD 35. I made known to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. And now he begins the creed. Now, if Paul was saved around 32 AD, he tells us in the letter to the Galatians that he went away to Arabia for three years. That puts him at 35. When he comes back from Arabia at 35, he goes to Jerusalem and he schedules a meeting with Peter and James and he hangs out with them for two weeks. He tells us about that and he interviews them and he finds out, hey, tell me your story, I'm gonna tell you mine. And then they in that meeting told him this creed, which scholars believe dates back to a year from the date of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That is as early, that is as much gold as what you can ever hope for as a historical record goes. He goes on to say that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also. And they used creeds, Christians used creeds. They weren't a lot literate, 
But the way that they further the message, they would make something memorable. They would memorize it. And then they could tell it and retell it and tell it. So why are you telling me this? Because if you ever have somebody tell you that the gospels were written hundreds of years after the fact, or the New Testament was written three or 400 years after the fact, and that the story kept getting bigger and bigger, and that a group of men got together, a group of priests got together at a council for the church and decided what books were in and what books were out. You do not know history and you are being sold a false bill of what actually happened. This creed puts us within a year of the resurrection, which means the earliest Christians believed that Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised from the dead. This is not something that developed over time. This is something that Christians have believed from the very beginning, not because of what they believed, but because of what they said they saw. And that brings us to, I'll get these quicker the eyewitness testimony. The first disciples wrote down what they saw. The New Testament is not a book about what people believe. The New Testament is a book about what people said they saw. John 1:14, we saw his glory. Luke, he said, I've interviewed the eyewitnesses to give you an orderly account. Mark talked to Peter who was there and saw it. John, I love what John said. John said, we proclaim to you the one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard, and seen. We saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Luke, he writes about 84 historical details, all from Acts 13 to 28. Small town politicians, local slang, uh, topographical features, water depth, uh, weather patterns, and they've all been established as true. While at the same time, he's writing that Peter and Paul are performing miracles in the power of Jesus' name. Why would he go through so much to tell a lie about the miracles, but work so hard to get all of those minor details? It's because he was there. He was watching it. He wrote it down. Listen to Luke. Luke says, I double dog dare you to Google me on this. This is what he says. He says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Arturia, and Trachonitis and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, talking about John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. He said, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you when it happened. All eight leaders have been certified in history as being in office in AD 29, the season in which all of this was to take place. It's reasonable to trust this record. Luke mentions 32, would you answer it please? 32 counties. We heard it the first time. 32 counties. See, when you ring here in London, it's a multi-campus ring. People in Williamsburg and Somerset, they're checking their phone right now. Honey, is it us? Is it, no, it's, it's us. I'm just kidding, well, not really, but anyway. Luke mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands, no mistake. John has 59 historically verified details in his gospel. In 1990, people had been questioning, was Caiaphas really a real person? In 1990, they kind of figured out that he was, they found his bones. The ossuary of Caiaphas, they found his bones and they discovered exactly what the New Testament tells us, that he was high priest during that time. And the writers all throughout the New Testament are saying, we saw him, we saw him live, we saw him die, 
we saw him come back to life and we believe that he's God's son. How about the embarrassing testimony? The first disciples wrote down what others would have edited out. If we're trying to make a great story, there were some things we would probably take out if we were editors. They wrote down that Jesus was descended from whores and hookers. I think we would have probably taken it out. If you're trying to sell the son of God holy without sin, great grandma was a hooker, great great grandmother was a whore. I, what? No. Let's not, you say, what, why are you talking that way? Just read Matthew 1. Just read Matthew 1. I mean, it's way more in depth than that. What about scoundrels? What about cheaters? What about just bloodthirsty men? I mean, how about non-Jewish people? You're trying to sell a Jewish Messiah to a Jewish people and he's got non-Jewish blood? Are you kidding me? Why didn't you put it in there? Well, it's the facts. Prostitute washing Jesus's feet. It's like, I, I, I can just see, I can see Matt. Guys, maybe we, can we make her a school teacher? I, I, does, it, does, she, does she have? They recorded their lack of faith, their own failures, their lack of understanding. I mean, Peter, supposedly the first Pope. I mean, if they were making this up hundreds of years later, it's not good for the first Pope to be called Satan by the founder. Hey, Jesus asked us to pray, and you know what we did? We prayed. No, we fell asleep. Men, you know how much ego we've got. We got a little bit of ego. If we were writing the story, we wouldn't have been hiding while the women had all the guts. It's embarrassing. It's like, wow, it almost sounds human. Yeah. How about the extraordinary testimony? The first disciples wrote down what they said they saw, and they, what they saw changed their life. They abandoned Temple sacrifices, because Jesus was the one sacrifice for sin. The law of Moses, which had been taught as binding their whole life, they no longer saw as binding. They no longer observed the Sabbath. They worshiped on Sunday, and they worshiped a man as God. Unthinkable for a Jewish person. It's extraordinary. How about the excruciating testimony? The first disciples wrote down what they said they saw, and then they gave their lives for it. Chuck Colson, who was known as Hickson, uh, Nixon's hatchet man before he got saved and became a Christian and he founded a prison ministry because he himself went to prison. Listen to what he says. He says, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up, perpetuated by the closest aides to the president of the United States, the most powerful men in America who were intensely loyal to their president. But one of them, John Dean, turned state's evidence that is, testified against Nixon, as he put it, to save his own skin. And he did so only two weeks after informing the president about what was really going on. Two weeks. The real cover-up, the lie, could only be held together for two weeks. And then everybody else jumped ship in order to save themselves. Now, the fact is that all that those around the president was facing was embarrassment, maybe prison. Nobody's life was at stake. But what about the disciples? 12 powerless men, peasants really. They were facing not just embarrassment or political disgrace, but beatings, stonings, and execution. Every single one of the disciples insisted to their dying breaths that they had physically seen Jesus bodily raised from the dead. Excruciating testimony. Dragged before governors and councils and magistrates and emperors. And they were demanded by the most powerful men in the world, recant 
Peter and Paul says, we cannot. And Nero had them both killed outside the city of Rome. Andrew, oh, Andrew, who brought his brother Peter to faith. Andrew went north to Syria and was crucified. Thomas, I won't believe unless I see the wounds of his hands went as far as India and was killed by four soldiers with spears. Philip traveled to North Africa, converted the wife of a Roman proconsul and was killed. Matthew also went to Africa and was killed in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, Arabia, died for his faith. James, the son of Alphaeus, clubbed to death in Syria. Simon the Zealot went to Persia and was killed after refusing to worship the sun god. Matthias, who replaced Judas, went to Syria and was burned to death. The stories of these men who were stoned and burned and beheaded and drowned and sawn into for what? Not because of what they believed, but what they said they saw. They saw Jesus die. And then on the third day, they saw him alive again and they could not take it back. And they wrote it down. And then finally, the expectation testimony. The first disciples recognized Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies. They understood that the point of the Old Testament was saying, he's coming, don't miss him. When he comes, He'll be a descendant of Abraham. He'll be a descendant of Isaac and not Ishmael, of Jacob and not Esau. When he comes, he's gonna come out of the tribe of Judah. When he comes out of the tribe of Judah within the line of Jesse, look for him there. When he steps onto the pages of history, he'll rise up out of the house of David. He'll be born in a village called Bethlehem. Isaiah said, yeah, but let me tell you, look for him as the one born of a virgin. His ministry will begin in Galilee. His life will be characterized by miracles. One day, he will ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. He'll be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver. The Old Testament says he'll be wrongfully accused, but silent before his accusers. He'll be spit upon, wounded, and bruised. He'll have his hands and feet nailed. He'll be buried in a rich man's tomb, but he'll be raised on the third day. And then as the New Testament opens up, the one that was coming had come. And they said, don't miss him. Why are we a people of hope? Oh, I'll tell you why we're a people of hope. Ladies and gentlemen, the tomb's empty. Why do we believe that the best is yet to come? Oh, let me tell you, the tomb is empty. Why do we believe that failure isn't final? Because the tomb is empty. Why do we believe that there is forgiveness for every sin, that there is grace that is greater than our guilt? Because the tomb is empty. Why do we believe that the tomb is empty? Because God exists and miracles are possible and the documents are reliable because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they said, this is what the eyewitnesses saw. We were there, we saw him, we touched him. And we wanted you to know that we believed you so much. We laid down our lives for it. And the question is,
are we willing to trust their testimony? And I think it's reasonable that we take what they said as history because there's too many reasons not to. Heavenly Father, we believe what we believe today because of what the New Testament frames for us. Who Jesus is, what he did, why it matters, what we look forward to, what we are a part of, we believe it because of trustworthy witnesses. So Father, I pray that your word comes alive in our hearts. It's living, it's breathing. Speak into us faith. May our faith just explode to know what we have been swept up in the middle of. Remind us what we believe is true. It matters, it's consequential. We can hang our hopes on it. In Jesus' name and everybody said.